Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy and I'm sitting in this week for Hugh Linehan, currently doing the downward dog at his annual yoga and Guinness retreat in Donegal. I'm joined by my colleagues, Ms. Jennifer Bray. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning. And Mr. Jack Horgan-Jones. Hi, Jack. Hi, Pat. Later, we'll be discussing the challenges facing the new leader of the DUP, Jeffrey Donaldson, with the editor of the Slugger O'Toole website, Mick Fealty. But first, I want to talk a bit about some issues facing the government in Dublin, not least the growing fear in some circles that the July the 5th reopening could now be postponed. Jack, first of all, what was due to be opened in July and is it now under threat? There, there was a few things. I think there was an increase in the number of uh, people that could mix or the number of households that could mix internally. I think that was supposed to go up to four and there were some other changes across the board. So there was supposed to be more people uh, allowed at outdoor gatherings and stuff like that. But the, the really kind of headline one uh, and the most visible one was the, the switch back to indoor dining. So about two weeks ago, just over two weeks ago, outdoor dining reopened and the next uh, the next staging post on that was restaurants being allowed to have people inside and pubs being allowed to have people inside. And that was a real kind of important, uh, it's, a, it's an important moment because not only does it signify that the, the virus has remained under control to a greater or less, lesser extent through um, the reopening that has, has happened so far, it also would signify that we were comfortable enough uh, with where we're at in the vaccination program, that there could be like a step change, a very clear step change in how risky the activities we were willing to countenance uh, were, because obviously moving inside is significantly more dangerous in terms of the risks of transmission uh, than than eating eating outside. Um, I, I think that there is a clear and present danger at this point to plans to reopen uh, on July 5th. In fact, if I had to if I had to take a bet now, I'd say it's almost certainly going to be pushed back. The reason being that we have this new Delta variant, which at some point in the, in the coming weeks is likely to become the dominant variant uh, and it's more transmissible and it is more resistant to incomplete schedules of vaccination. So if you, if you, if you take a step back, and look at this in terms of the risk reward for government. The reward of reopening would be that we stay on the timetable and you know you'd avoid you'd avoid another bashing of the collective ears by the hospitality sector. But the risk is pretty significant as well. It's not as significant as Christmas because I think in all scenarios vaccination mitigates against more serious levels of disease and death, but it doesn't totally mitigate against the, the risk of a small further wave of infection and associated hospitalization and some level of death. And it doesn't protect the government against the possibility of, if that were to happen, then having to backslide and perhaps uh, move a step back, close indoor hospitality again. And that is anathema to the government's 
post-Christmas strategy, which has been basically controlled by two organizing principles. The first being that things will be done in a stepwise, gradual approach um, and will be done slowly. And the second one, that it will be done permanently, that what opens will stay open. And I think that if either of those covenants, the procedural ones or the kind of outcome ones, were to be broken, I think there'd be a serious problem politically for the government. And I think that's why all the kind of various calculations that are going on at the moment would favour a delay to the reopening, certainly of indoor hospitality. There's an associated issue with travel coming down the the tracks, which is actually more complicated as well, though. There does seem to me to have been a sort of a change on this in the last 24, 48 hours. So over the weekend and uh, and even as late as Monday and even as late as yesterday morning on his way into cabinet, the Taoiseach was saying, you know, at present there is no, uh, you know, there is no question or there is no threat to the July the 5th reopening. But by last night, and we see this reflected on the front pages of uh, of, of the Examiner and the Indo this morning, as well as our, our own paper, uh, people in government now seem to be guiding that. Well, you know, if we were to make the decision now, we would make we we would reopen, but in a week's time, it may be looking like the decision might be different. That's certainly the sense I was getting from political sources last night, but you were talking to some people in the public health area. What were they saying to you? Yeah, I mean, similarly, I, I detected a, a kind of shift over the day, over the course of the day on Tuesday, um, on the political side in particular, in that, you know, we're talk, you talk to people in the morning, and even after Cabinet, there was this sense of, yeah, no, there, there's a bit of concern, but like, as, as things stand, we'll be going ahead. But there was a subtle shift as we moved into the afternoon and into the evening. And, and who knows exactly what conversations were happening between, you know, the, the highest level of government and the highest levels at the National Public Health Emergency Team. But certainly there was a, there was a shift in stance. And by the time evening rolled around, uh, the, the line had become, first of all, that we won't go against public health advice handing the kind of the, the whip hand over to Tony Hoolan and the rest of, of, of Neffet. And then eventually it became, the briefing became more that, you know, we are significant, there are significant levels of concern. And I think that part of the reason for that is that they could read the tea leaves and tea leaves and see what was coming down the tracks in terms of where Neffet is likely to end up. I think that they they see that the the innate caution of Neffet is likely to only lead in one direction, which is more time for vaccinations when faced with a variant of this nature is no bad thing. And therefore, there is no political percentage at the moment in chucking out Neffet advice. I mean, the last time they did that or, you know, were seen to have done that was Christmas. And no one has an interest in either a repeat of uh, of what happened at Christmas or the kind of political semiotics of Christmas where you had, you know, people at each other's throats um, and, and, and you know, discord in, in terms of how the state writ large was responding to the pandemic. Jennifer, you were doing your customary post-cabinet truffling around the place yesterday. Did you get any sense of the discussions that took place uh, amongst ministers on this issue? Yeah, so uh, ministers were told that the vaccination campaign was proceeding well. Um, but they were also told that, you know, basically there was a briefing on these these variants and sort of where this will leave us over the next couple of months. Um, and so that immunity from from vaccines generally as well, that it will obviously won't last beyond a certain amount of time. Now, we actually don't know what the length of time is for the immunity vaccines. I think we're still trying to work through that. But they were told because of this, 
um, because of this eventuality, that a significant proportion of the population would need booster shots effectively. And that was also put into play in terms of this year. It wasn't necessarily this is something in the far off future. It was that a significant proportion of the population will need a booster shot in the coming months and next year. And to that end, uh, the state has opted in to buy a huge amount of extra doses um, of both Moderna uh, and Janssen. And we have, I think, a really large amount of um, Pfizer coming in in 2022 and also in 2023, um, north of 4 million um, each. So I, I think the, the message was that while the campaign is going well thus far, um, you know, they'll be very cognizant of those variants concerned and look long term into end of the year, start of next year uh, and the year after in terms of booster shots. So we're clearly thinking beyond the present, um, obviously the present danger, like you were talking about there, about the Delta variant um, and who knows this new Delta Plus variant that we're hearing about this morning uh, is, is the main conversation. But there is a, a, a body of thought then into into next year, which which is important. Jack, from what you say, it seems that we are not likely to see a reprise of the sort of government versus Nefed conflicts that we've seen in advance, sometimes subterranean and although much of it may be uh, in advance of, of, of other reopenings. But there will, I think, be pressure or at least signals from the government to NIAC. That's the body that oversees the uh, eligibility of the various age cohorts for particular vaccines. Um, we, we, we may see some, uh, some signals from the government to that body that it wants changes to the, uh, to the vaccination or changes to the eligibility of certain vaccines to further accelerate the rollout of vaccinations. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, just to come back to, to the first point you made, I, I think that there is likely to be uniformity of approach in the final reckoning on, on hospitality. I do think that travel may be slightly more complex, complex but we have a ways to go before then. On, on vaccines... As I understand it, at Cabinet yesterday, there was quite an extensive discussion on what is coming down the tracks regarding vaccination. And what is coming down the tracks regarding vaccination is that when we finish the AstraZeneca portion of the uh, program in the middle of next month, the middle of July, when people in their 60s have full protection under AstraZeneca, the AstraZeneca deliveries are still scheduled to continue. We're still supposed to get a lot of doses in. And the delayed Johnson & Johnson vaccines, that's the single shot vaccine, they're supposed to start coming in in July and August as well. Now, at the moment, under the current NIAC advice, there is a lower age bound on people who can receive that. So you can't give it to people in in their 20s and in their 30s. So the government will be faced with what one minister described to me yesterday as an unsustainable situation where you have still large portions of the population unvaccinated. You have variants of increasing concern and potency coming into the country. And you have still a break on certain civil liberties linked to your vaccination status. You know, whether it's travel, whether it's gathering, whatever. And all the while you have this big uh, reservoir of vaccines building up in the fridge. You have warehouses full of vaccines that you can't use while people are unvaccinated. Now... You can't be doing that, can you? And that has always been the problem. And and, and it's 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 kind of forestalled a little bit because of the issue around around the, the Janssen delays. We thought this was going to happen earlier, but it is going to happen. 
And they can only then turn to Nayak and say, look, all things being equal, is there not a world in which someone can go in in their 20s or 30s and positively affirm that they are willing to take the risks on board of uh, very rare blood Which are minimal. Which, which aren't enormous of the very rare blood clotting events and accept the vaccine <laughs> and that that would provide if you'd pardon the terrible pun, a shot in the arm as we, as we, ah. as we move into later summer Jesus, and, and, and autumn and, and we can get to like really substantial levels of vaccination coverage and that we can vaccinate younger people quicker during the summer. Because I was talking to someone senior in public health yesterday and they said basically, and, and they're very much in favour of this as well. That's worth noting as well. They're very much mm-hmm. in favour of this and of other things like vaccine mixing. Um, they they say that look you're you're faced with two kind of scenarios here one you're heading into september with schools resuming with you know a large degree of vaccination across nearly everyone in the population in another scenario if you've reopened too quickly you know you're potentially trying to stamp out infection pockets of infection people in the 20s and 30s you're worrying about whether you have full vaccine protection for teachers and so on and you're scrambling to get back to school and so there, there is a, 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 a force of momentum from both the public health side and the government side for a more facilitative stance from NIAC on the vaccines. Mm. And it'd be really interesting to see where that goes in the coming days and weeks ahead. Mm, over to you, Nayak. Um, look, we leave that there for, for now. Jennifer, you've also been reporting on the current controversy about the National Maternity Hospital and the plan to relocate that facility from Hollis Street to the St. Vincent site in, in Dublin 4. Uh, first of all, can you briefly fill us in on the background to the dispute and bring us up to speed and to where we are now? Because I thought this had all been sorted a long time ago. <laughs> you and many other people. Um, yeah, so look, there are two reasons for, for moving the maternity hospital from Hollis Street to the Vincent's campus. One is that the Hollis Street building is regarded as dilapidated. And the second is because co-location allows for quicker access to complicated care whenever it's needed. And that is the preferred uh, model, that's a preferred healthcare model. Um, and, you know, we've been hearing about co-location since 2008, but in, in any way, um, it was actually back in 2013 that the then Minister for Health, James Riley, announced that it, the Hollis Street Hospital would relocate to the Vincent site at a cost of 150 million, it must be said. Um, and it kind of went quiet for a while. And then 2016, we saw kind of concerns um, erupt, I suppose, over governance issues um, late in 2016, there were talks, there was an agreement reached about a new company, about operational independence. All seemed fine until the following April. And people will probably remember this because it was a, a bit of a controversy at the time, April 2017, when the it emerged that the Religious Sisters of Charity who own the land um, would be given ownership of the hospital effectively because they were to be the shareholder. And it's, this story is kind of complicated in some ways, but they were to be the shareholder of a new St. Vincent's healthcare group, which would run the hospital and be the sole owner of it. Um, that kind of resurrected concerns about Catholic ethos at the hospital, about religious influence. And if you remember at that time, um, I think the following month in, in May 2017, Peter Boylan, Dr. Peter Boylan, former master of maternity hospital, resigned from the executive board. And he said that the board were blind to the consequences of transferring ownership effectively to the group. So the following month, then we had the Sisters Charity saying they'd end all involvement in the Vincent's Healthcare Group. They would not be involved in the hospital. Uh, and it went quiet again. And the, the following year, some kind of social context is that uh, the Eighth Amendment was repealed in a referendum, which we remember. Um, and once again, it seemed that the uh, issues were addressed 
um, and even as there late- was there was a process. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but mm. there was a process to iron iron out this, mm-hmm. overseen by uh, the state's premier industrial relations <laughs> troubleshooter, mm-hmm. and I thought there was an agreement reached. There was an agreement reached. Um, where the, I think what's happened is in the intervening years, as the department has worked with the St. Vincent's group and, and worked through the legalities of it, the structure has kind of changed from what he proposed. So he proposed a system basically whereby there would be clinical independence, operational independence. There would be a certain amount of uh, directors and a certain amount of, you know, on both sides that basically kept everybody happy, more or less. Mm-hmm. And it seemed that it was that, that it was sorted. But uh, as we know now, it's not. Um, and, you know, in, at the very end of 2019, this kind of came up again. And Leo Varadkar, who was the Taoiseach at the time, said that this would be a state-owned building uh, on state land and that the details of the legal transfer were being sorted out. And they'd be sorted out in a couple of weeks. Now, obviously, we know that's that's not the case. Um, in the intervening period, what happened was that the Sisters of Charity had to effectively ask for permission from the Holy See uh, to transfer its shareholdings to this new holdings group. So it's a new charity, effectively, that alone, the hospital. Um, they got the letter of grant, but that caused concerns amongst campaigners because they believed that there would still be some influence of, of canon law in the new company because the, the, the ethos or the stated values were very similar to the Catholic state values with the former. It's very complicated, but basically they were worried that uh, there would still be that, that, that religious um, influence. Um, is, is the issue then that the separation of ownership and governance, which seems mm. to me was at the heart of the Mulvey compromise or the Mulvey, Kieran Mulvey mm-hmm. negotiated agreement, that those issues have become again muddied and that there is the, the fear from campaigners and from the opposition's point of view. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, nursed by some people in government, is that certain procedures, many of them relating to women's reproductive health, that are in conflict with Catholic doctrine would not be available, which are currently available in Hollis Street, would mm-hmm. not be available in the relocated Hollis Street. Is that the point? And is it on those points that we are awaiting reassurance from the religious side, if I can put it like that? Yeah, I mean, that there are two issues there, right? There's the issue of ownership, like you talk about, and there's also the issue of clinical governance and independence and basically how the new hospital will be run. And they are separate, but they're so interwoven. So if we're talking about concerns that the new company will have a Catholic Catholic ethos or religious influence, what the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, said uh, as early as this morning uh, on Morning Ireland, he said that he has, you know, um, he's got a legal opinion that that is absolutely not the case um, and that he's working with officials in the Department of Health. But campaigners say if you have a hospital on land that is not owned by the state and that, you know, effectively is in the care of or under the influence some way uh, of of a Catholic organisation or an organisation with Catholic ethos, then how will you have, you know, terminations or or IVF or tubal ligation or sterilisation or any of those things? So they are actually connected. Um, the other issue with, with the ownership, I think, is that, you know, Leo Varadkar kind of, this thing was kind of bubbling under this year and it was simmering away and campaigners were raising concerns. 
and they weren't really being listened to to a certain degree. People were kind of saying, well, do they have a point, don't they? And it was very hard to get your head around it until Leo Varadkar stood up on the doll and said that, you know, the state had problems with effectively mm. putting in... Why does the state have problems now mm. when it didn't appear to have them before? I get the impression that certainly Leo Varadkar always thought, as I said, he said in late 2019, that this would be a state-owned building on state-owned land. Now, the cost has shot up, as Jack was reporting, to 800 million, which is massive. You know, it's a big increase from 150 million. And I think the concern in government is protecting that taxpayer investment, massive investment, and saying we're putting 800 million euro into this and we won't own the land um, and how does that marry, you know, because it's supposed to be a 99 year lease effectively with an option for a 50 year extension. Um, so he's raised those concerns. Now, when he first raised them, I think it set the whole thing alight again. But at the weekend at his Ardesh, he said uh, that it, w- it was a red line issue for the government in terms of owning the site. Um, and, you know, politicians were given a briefing last week privately where they were told the state had tried to buy the land before and had failed. Mm. And, you know, that kind of, there was a debate then in the days afterwards. So what we had then yesterday was effectively, you know, I'd heard that meetings were being planned between the department, between Donnelly and the Religious Sisters on one hand, and also the new Saint, the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group, and that he was going to, the government was going to make an approach to buy this land. Uh, and I think they thought that they had a willing sale or a sale that they thought it would happen effectively. And then the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group put out a statement yesterday evening uh, in which they said that they must retain ownership. Of the they site. shut the door. They shut oh, the door. Yeah. They completely the, blew up the Is plans. that the end of that or what, what are the next steps now? Well, that's the big question. The question is, they've already ruled it out. So if, they, if the government now, Stephen Donnelly goes into talks with um, the healthcare group, what is it he's hoping to achieve when they've already told him what he wants he will not get? Where does that leave the state? Especially when Leo Varadkar said it was a red line issue. So their options are, uh, now there's a really complicated, there's a couple of different options. Um, like there's a site transfer, but they're obviously not going to do that because they want to own the land. Um, you could look at the option of CPO. They really don't want to do CPO compulsory purchase order because it'll take years and be bogged down and legal problems and all See that. See in the high court. And yeah. yeah, exactly. But there's another option, which is to abandon the project um, and possibly co-locate the Hollis Street Hospital, maybe somewhere like Tala, because all of the other relocations of maternity hospitals are going to sites that the, the state owns. In fact, those problems haven't arisen elsewhere. Now, they really don't want to go down that road either because they've put money into the site already and they've set it up and they've had mm. years and years of negotiations. So the, the question of where it goes now is very, very much up in the air. Very much up sounds in the air. Like, sounds like if we're not back to square one, maybe we're back to square two yeah. or I to think square it's a, Sorry, just to, just to uh, interrupt. Um, I think it's interesting, and Jen touched it there, is why are we talking about this now? And it's because of this interact this this intervention effectively from Leva Riker and the doll, you know, uh, he's, he's, he's a dab hand at avoiding questions uh, when he wants to and, and putting information to the public domain when he wants to as well. So it's interesting that he effectively chose to respond to Breed Smith and, you know, launch this kind of Exocet missile into the side of the process by saying, yes, we have we have issues. And there's various schools of thought as to why he did that. Like, there's a kind of very conspiratorial one, which is like, it's something to do with the Dublin Bay South by-election. And he's trying to, to show that, you know, the, the liberal-leaning lovies of, of Dublin Bay South, that Fine Gael and James Gagan, by extent, are willing to stand up to the nuns, etc., etc. I, I don't particularly buy that, to be honest. Um, I think that a more proximate cause, and one to, one to look closely at, is that a, apparently a draft memo on the purchase of the, uh, sorry, on the National Maternity Hospital plan 
was circulated about three or four weeks ago to the party leaders uh, from the Department of Health, from Stephen Donnelly, and went no further. So I wonder, did the party leaders at that point, in fact, I'm led to believe that the party leaders at that point found something in there that they didn't like. Uh, And that may be what is kind of thrown sand in the gears at this moment. Now, then we got into the whole issue of whether... Could it be, sorry to interrupt, Jack, could it be that the thing that they found that they didn't like was the incredible escalation in the costs of this project and that they would prefer to have a row about ethos than a row about the cost? I, I don't think so, actually, because when because that, that 800 million figure only emerged from the department late last week and this, this pre-existed that. So when I was talking to people about the 800 million euro figure late last week, some senior people hadn't heard it yet. It was only that it emerged from the Department of Health last Friday into Saturday. I think what's more likely is that they weren't happy with the terms of the lease and they weren't happy with the governance arrangements. Then the whole issue of a purchase and whether a, whether an offer had been made or not and whether in fact the nuns and Vincents might be open to an offer, that then emerged and generated its own momentum, which has kind of now gone away. I think the landing zone here for everyone is something on the lease, some better terms on the lease. I don't know exactly what that would look like and significant concessions on the corporate governance side as well. I think that if they, if they offer up more seats appointed by the government onto the board of whatever corporate entities end up running um, the maternity hospital, I think that gets us some way down the road towards a deal. And I think that the absence of those things in that draft memo, I believe may have been what caused this latest wobble. It's the, it's, it's the original cause of this latest wobble. Well, it's clearly going to be with us for some time to come, whatever else, in my view, whatever else this looks like. It does not look like a carefully managed political stroke to uh, to influence uh, a, a by-election. But we will leave that there for now and turn to another subject that involves uh, Leo Varadkar. And in politics, there's usually at least as much going on behind closed doors as there is in public view. And one of the things that's going on behind closed doors at the moment is a struggle over the government's budgetary strategy, a central and often defining issue for any government. The summer economic statement is due in the coming weeks, though when I was asking about it over the weekend and yesterday, nobody seemed to know exactly when. And the thing to watch out for, I think, will be whether it sets spending and deficit targets for the government into the future. So this is all about the pace and extent of the adjustment for the public finances for the post-COVID era. There's broadly two schools of thought, the Department of Finance-inspired view that spending discipline needs to return as soon as possible, and the more expansive view of much of the rest of the government that deficit spending should continue for the time being. Leo Varadkar, who in his youth was something of a spending hawk, told his party at the weekend that he wanted to keep the levels of COVID spending in the Department of Health an extra four billion this year. He wants to see all wages rise, and he wants to build for forty thousand houses a year amidst, amidst much else. The week before that, he was talking about. Tax cuts. Jack, uh, what's your take on this? Is, Le- is Leo Varadkar all right? Is he? What, what's going on behind the scenes? You know, it's actually interesting. So the last, the last story we were talking about, um, the, the maternity hospital, on, on last Friday when that 800 million figure emerged around the cost of the new maternity hospital, apparently it was said in that meeting on Thursday to, uh, to, to the opposition politicians. And I heard that and I was running around trying to stand it up. And eventually, Department of Health came back with a statement and said, yeah, it's true. And this was significantly higher than the other figures that had been you know, circulated, which were somewhere between 350 and 500 million. Someone who I'd been on to trying to stand up the figure rang me back, someone in government, 
And I said, oh, yeah, no, it's grand. I have, I have to figure it up. And they said, what is it? I said, it's 800 billion. And the Department of Health has confirmed with it. Oh, geez, that's so much more than, you know, than, than had been agreed hitherto. And, you know, I thought it was 500. And then they kind of said, I sure, I suppose it's just a rounding error at this stage. <laughs> the government is, yeah. so, and the point I'm making there is the government, this government is so used to spending money spending titanic amounts of money like we have come out of a where we're still in a phase really where like the only comparison is like a wartime mobilization of the entire state and a wartime mobilization of the exchequer to one end you know and there are kind of fears in the more kind of fiscally hawky parts of government that remain that like this particular administration has totally forgotten about anything that looks like spending discipline, that the entire frame has shifted, that, you know, it's it's so much easier to keep spending money when you are spending money, as opposed to having to confront the issue of when and how we stop spending money. And the fear is that they've forgotten how not to spend money and that you have a whole host of people in government whose only experience in government has been this current stance and trying to unwind and back out of that and figure out the way forward and confront the really difficult choices that have to be made on a whole host of issues, not just housing and COVID spending, but climate and all the rest of it is going to be like a fundamental and really pressing and difficult to negotiate challenge for the coalition in the next kind of six to nine months. Isn't there a broader issue behind this, Jen? Because I expect this is all a you know a matter of uh, of degree, and some sort of compromise will be hammered out, um, you know, between between the parties. But the experience, and we're approaching the first anniversary um, uh, uh, of this government. The, the experience of it so far is that political problems, as between the three parties, have been solvable by the application of large amounts of money. Now, of course, there has been uh, like governments everywhere. Irish government has been borrowing and spending big, as Jack, uh, as Jack outlines, to meet the costs of COVID. But it's also to meet run-of-the-mill political problems, which are solved by the first instinct of politicians, which is to spend, uh, is to spend a load of money on them. So when that money not runs out, but when the tap is turned down a bit, and, you know, I think, you know, even... Uh, the most enthusiastic Keynesians in government would realise or would admit that over the next year, 24 months or so, that they that the sort of spending we've seen for or the sort of rec- immediate recourse to spending to solve problems, political problems uh, over the last 12 months, that that will that that will ease off. And is that going to make it, I wonder, a lot more difficult for the government to get over those day-to-day issues that jump up and, and, and bite every government in the tail end? Absolutely. I mean, you're right. Like, money just gets thrown at issues that come up and it's been easier to do that in, in the recent context. I thought it was very interesting to... It was kind of a, not a, a sort of a throwaway comment by the Taoiseach in the Dáil yesterday where he said on Monday night he'd been given a... A presentation by the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, and the Minister of Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath. And they gave basically an overview and a presentation of the forthcoming summary economic statement, which you've been writing about. Um, and he was saying it was a sober assessment of the situation over the next five years, generally speaking. So he said, you know, 
we knew that there would be exceptional spending effectively for these two years. Uh, and that was required. It was needed because of the pandemic. Um, but that generates an exceptional deficit. Um, and he was basically saying the plan is to ease the way out of that towards a balanced fiscal position over the next five years. Um, and he kind of he kind of presented it as a trajectory and kind of a slow move into that direction. But we don't know the detail around how that's going to be achieved um, and how they're going to pay for that and what they're going to cut back on, especially when you have, you know, Leo Varadkar at the Ordash talking about, you know, basically the Department of Health absorbing and continuing with all of that extra funding that they've that they've been given. Uh, and we know that the state is going to be so much bigger after the pandemic and that it'd be a permanent thing. We just don't know yet what the plan is to move us towards that position. And I would wonder, a cynical, cynical part of me wonders, are they heading over the five-year direction so that when they get to the next election, um, what they're handing, potentially Sinn Féin, who the trends suggest are going to sweep into government buildings, are they handing them this problem eventually at the end of their government term and saying, well, now you have to make the difficult decision. Now, that's just the cynic in me, but I would wonder. Such such cynicism in one so young. Uh, I suspect we'll be back to talk about this quite a lot over the coming weeks and in the months ahead. But for now, Jennifer, thank you very much. And Jack, adieu. You're listening to the Irish Times. Get the inside track in marketing with the Inside Marketing Podcast. Every fortnight, we talk to some of the leaders of the Irish marketing industry and beyond. Whether it's the death of the cookie, the future of search, or exploring the world of gaming. Find out what it means for marketing in Ireland. Follow Inside Marketing to get Inside Marketing. Brought to you by Dentsu Ireland and the Irish Times Media Solutions. Available on all major podcast platforms. Well, after a tumultuous few weeks for the DUP, Jeffrey Donaldson has emerged uncontested as its next leader. It's third in a mere handful of weeks. What sort of challenges will face Jeffrey Donaldson now as he picks up the reins of a disunited party in a fractured political landscape? Well, I'm joined by the editor of the Slugger O'Toole website, Mick Fealty, to discuss. Mick, thanks for joining us. Uh, Jeffrey Donaldson takes office at a time of unprecedented challenges, really, not just for the DUP, but a time of kind of great uncertainty for unionism in general. Uh, what faces him immediately and and then over the medium term, I suppose? Well, immediately he's got to try and bring the party together. And that looks like a, a, a prima facie, it looks like a difficult job to do. Uh, I suppose the one good thing he's got in his favour is they've all seen what happens when you put in a polarising leader, a leader that doesn't uh, uh, employ anybody in either executive seats or chairs at the assembly for his allies, or uh, gives it all to his allies and none to his enemies. I think they've all had a moral lesson about what damage they all ship when that sort of thing happens. And to some extent, the the... That overclouds the original concerns that prompted um, the coup on Arlene Foster in the first place, which was pressing concerns from the public about the effect that the protocol is having on the east-west, uh, the east-west trade flows. Now they're not having them yet because of the grace periods, but but they're getting representations from business telling them this is simply not something they can live with. So he, you know. Uh, to some extent, that's been downgraded 
And uh, party unity has been upgraded, I think, as part of the the internal priorities of the DUP. Is the party itself, do you get the sense, in any way chastened by the the recent events? In other words, has it it caused, uh, you know, have the the two departures, have they caused the DUP leadership, I mean, in the broad sense, to reflect on their own behaviour? And if so... Does that give Jeffrey Donaldson more of a free hand to deal with the two governments on the protocol issue? Yeah, I think I think it has. Even Edwin Poots, I think Edwin Poots is the typical um, uh, introvert, not particularly gregarious. I think much of the mistakes he made were to do with the fact that he's not that great with people uh, and not that great with telling the public, the real story, both he and Arlene Foster recently unburdened from serious senior responsibility, leadership responsibilities went on. Well, he went on Radio Ulster yesterday morning, give an interview in which he said, look, I stood outside here, uh, you know, the BBC in 1985 and 1986 as a young loyalist. I went to all the street protests around the Anglo-Irish agreement. And you know what? We didn't make any difference whatsoever. So that people who are saying pull the assembly down and that will ensure we can win on the protocol, that's a demonstrative failure from the past. Uh, whereas I can see through negotiation we're making actual progress, uh, and I think this goes. So I think that's something internally that has been long recognised within the DUP, but it's something they've been very poor at externalising to their own political support. Um, so to some extent. I think Jeffrey's going to have to continue down on that line with leveling with people saying, look, Stormont is our friend. It's the only real influence we've got. Um, and we're going to have to build on that. And more broadly, it needs to start telling better stories about itself and about Northern Ireland than it has done heretofore. Is, isn't that a challenge that fa- faces unionism in a wider sense, though? I mean, when you look at, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't hold to the view that a border poll is on the horizon for the foreseeable future. Uh, but when you look at the gra- the accelerating almost separation in a, in a sort of psychological and cultural sense of the North from the rest of the UK, it seems to me that Jeffrey Donaldson is becoming leader at a time when unionism is 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 almost facing a sort of broader unionism and not just in a political sense is 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 facing challenges that it hasn't for a, a long time and in response to those challenges is having almost something of a nervous breakdown and it's you know what we see in the DUP is kind of the political outworking of that i think it's easy to see it in in those broad unionist terms because we are accustomed to looking upon the DUP as the sole representative of unionist voice. And within that, the loudest voices often predominate. So although we've seen a more conciliatory uh, noises coming from the likes of um, Campbell, uh, particularly in RTE, seems to be more, anyone who seems to be able to speak in a human voice gets sent to RTE to talk to the South. Uh, But Sammy Wilson's voice keeps coming through with references to chip shops and, you know, simplifying demagoguery, which goes down really well with some of the hardcore, but it's becoming obvious to the DUP that Robinson's attempt to try and appeal to a much wider base is failing precisely because that 
demagoguery is no longer effective in terms of bigger politics. Um, but it's never been complete, the complete story on unionism. For me, there's two different kinds of unionism now. There's the explicit party political unionism, which is rep- represented by the DUP primarily. In the second place, not the third place, second place, Ulster unionism, which has been the refuge for uh, more traditionally liberal. And I don't mean liberal on the constitutional question. I mean liberal as in, you know, um, things like allowing civic divorce, which, you know, the, the Republic is only a latecomer on that. Northern Ireland had that from partition onwards. And it, it, it propounded a certain sense of almost moral superiority among some of those liberal unionists uh, that they were further down that liberal road, road than, uh, uh, than, than the South. And then you've got the TUV, of course. But they're all explicitly party political. There's also a, a group of people who are, uh, at times I've described as post-unionist, but are probably just post-20th century uh, unionists in the sense they don't want to go out and vote for a party that defines itself purely on uh, constitutional identity, but much more on Northern Ireland as a thing in itself, um, actions that actually address things in the here and now rather than in the never-never of constitutional change. Um, And so, you know, where did the Alliance Party get its last uh, win in the Westminster elections? The place I come from, North Down. You know, in North Down is the second most Protestant constituency in the whole of Northern Ireland. So the move towards post-unionism is not necessarily a movement away from unionism in the context, say, of a border poll or a referendum, but it's basically an expression of dissatisfaction with the constitutional question itself. So, yes, I think there is a nervous breakdown, but that's one—that's a pejorative way of putting it. I think there's just a breakdown of old certainties and the, uh, the public are simply moving away and making their own decisions about who's going to be most effective when it comes uh, to representing their voice. And, and, and maybe like electorates, both here and in lots of other places, the, uh, the, the voters are becoming, you know, disconnected are unrooted from their traditional homes. And that gives us an electoral politics that is uh, extremely unpredictable um, for, for, for a start. And Jeffrey Donaldson is first and foremost a politician, and he will be focused, I think, on next year's election, assuming that it doesn't come before next year, and on this existential challenge for the Unionist Party's uh, as to whether they can essentially keep Sinn Féin out of the First Minister's office. That's got to be one of his chief priorities, do you think? I think if he reduces it to that, he'll lose that battle. It, 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 when I say they need to tell more sto- better stories, I mean they need to tell stories that are really worthy in line with where the electorate are, and I just don't think the electorate... Uh, now, sections of the electorate certainly are. Loyalists... Uh, Inner Belfast, where the DUP has depended in the past on uh, the support of uh, of the working class. But, you know, they lost North Belfast uh, at Westminster, not likely to get uh, make much more grounds in, in, in those situations. Uh, and, you know, I just think a unionist leader that really starts to tell the truth uh, to its own people and to the wider population that change is desirable and change is necessary. And I think 
her, his capacity to be able to tell that story really depends on how successful he is. Now, Poots is, com- is, is claiming that Secretary of State has promised him there will be uh, the necessary changes to the protocol, but the proof will be in the pudding, in the eating of of not the sausages, but you know <laughs> uh, what what really that comes black out of pudding that. or white pudding, Nick. Well, where 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 it solves the problem of you know heightened expense of drawing everything in from Britain, because at the end of the day, people simply say, well, you can get them from Cookstown, or you can get them from the Republic. You can get Clonakilty black pudding. Why not? Yeah, if Clonakilty can make enough in the short space of time, there's issues of capacity, there's issues of distribution. All of those things take time to change, and actually that's time that Northern Ireland simply doesn't have. So I think I think some of these fixes are dismissed as fiction by some nationalists in the North, but actually they're, they're honestly necessary uh, to get us through the bump of this time. And when we get through to the other side, the story will be rather different and rather more pop, uh, uh, po- positive in the sense that we will have that dual access both to the United Kingdom's market and to uh, and to the Republic and on into the rest of the uh, United Kingdom. And that, if Donaldson can convincingly say that that's what his story is, then that is the way to keep the First Minister's thing. The base think people simply do not believe Sinn Féin and the DUP when they tell them that first that getting the First Minister's office is a... Is a, is a powerful thing and kicking out the prods or keeping out the takes is, is the way to go. I think, you know, plus 30% of the electorate is, is now switching off from those tunes and they're simply not interested anymore. As a point of gastronomic education at this point, I might point out to you and to our listeners that uh, that vastly superior to Clonakilty black pudding is Sneem black pudding, which is made by the two butchers in uh, uh, in the County Kerry village. But let us move on, Mick, and um, and and and, the and, and finally, the parish, <laughs> and uh, and finally, I think, I mean, you've watched Jeff, Jeffrey Donaldson for a long time. He's been a politician for the long time for a long time, and I think the view in Dublin, though they were very careful not to express this in any way in public until, um, you know, until nominations were closed, is that Jeffrey Donaldson, he is a politician. He is in, and the business of politics is making deals and doing compromises. And he may be, though he will have to achieve some sort of result on the protocol, probably in the coming weeks. But he is a man with whom... Dublin might be able to do business in a, not in terms of United Ireland agenda, obviously, but in a way of making the institutions work, making the North-South and indeed the East-West institutions work. What's your view? No, I think I think it fits in with particularly Fianna Fáil's initiative around the Shared Island uh, project. Uh, if that works, there's going to be serious money flowing uh, into the Northern Ireland, not just from the Republic, but joint funding from the EU, uh, the UK government, and I think one of the things we, we tend not to we tend to take a really parish view of Northern Ireland and go, it's, oh, look at it, it's a Gordian knot, you can't un, undo it. Look at these people who just hated each other from Alan Tyrone, Drury, Steeples, all the rest of it. The truth is, in macroeconomic terms, things are shifting faster than anybody can map. 
you know, Biden's just brought in a massive stimulus, which is going to have direct effects in the sense of uh, investment flows out of the United States. But it's also going to have, I think, uh, contagion in places like the ECB, the Bank of England, where the whole sort of fiscal policy, which has been eye-wateringly tight for most of the life of Stormont, um, is, go- is, is going to allow um, people all manner of ways of spending cash on the deficits, the infrastructure deficits that we all know exist. And that, I think, um, along with a settled protocol, as I say, where then Northern Ireland can get on with the strategic advantages that it will allow it, um, then I think then I think there's a really we might finally Northern Ireland get that peace dividend that we all thought was going to come after 1998. Mick, thanks for your time and your insights as ever. And that's all from this week's Inside Politics from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy. We'll talk to you next week.